Sweet. Thanks, Lisa. Hey, everybody. How are you doing? Great. Um, try to block out the UW-Michigan State game from your mind. There's nothing you can do about it until it happens, and then you still will only be watching television, okay? So, <clears throat> your energy probably doesn't travel that far. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry if that hurts your feelings. Um, <clears throat> the last several weeks we've been doing this series that we've been calling, um, mainly I've been calling, uh, the new normal, which is that when Jesus died and rose from the dead, when he ascended into heaven, and when the Holy Spirit came to empower those who believe in him, it started like a completely new chapter in the history of humanity in which five things are true. One is that there is a, a, a power from God that is unlike any other time in human history where those who've actually put their trust in Jesus are internally indwelt and empowered by God himself and the person of the Holy Spirit, okay? Secondly, the message of redemption has been entrusted to people. That is, all people who believe in Christ. And it's the whole message. It's not, as you work through the Bible, it's like little bits of the promise that are kind of building and growing. And you don't really have the whole message until Jesus comes, he dies, he's raised from the dead, and he explains the whole message. And then he, he entrusts it to people and he leaves. And so they have the whole message. And then there's this dynamic throughout the whole history of the church. It starts in Acts 2 and goes all the way through the end of Acts. And then all, you know, we just joke that we're in Acts 29 right, right now because there's 28 chapters in Acts. We're still in that chapter. And there is this way that God will do something powerful who, that'll create a persuasive hearing for the gospel. Somebody will speak the message into it. People will believe. And there will always be people who hate that. And some of them will actually attack you. And... You have to be ready for that because the Bible says that we are to love our enemies and to care about those who persecute us. And you have to be morally ready for that. And if you are, you'll be ready for a whole lot more in your life. Sorry, I didn't start my time and we need to do that. The last of the five things is that if you believe in the message about Jesus, what we call the gospel, the good news about Christ's death and resurrection, that he died for your sins, was raised for your justification, that is to set you right with God, that the fruit of that is that God empowers you personally through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and has called you to a new destiny, that that produces something that we refer to as the church, which doesn't sound exciting when we use that English declension, but it just means everybody who Jesus has called into a new community of a regenerate humanity that he is using for his redemptive purposes in the, in the whole earth that looks very normal when they gather together and wear their silly outfits but it is a cataclysmic change and a new humanity. And we have to recognize that when you come to Jesus, whatever devotion you have towards Christ will mirror itself in devotion to the family that he creates, which is the church, okay? I was at um, the gym this last Friday, and I was just shooting baskets because I— um, what, I was shooting baskets while my wife was actually doing like a real workout class and that was because I injured myself because I did this like harrowingly difficult exercise called a push-up the week before and like hurt something in my shoulder and so I was kind of taking it easy and so this woman that we know was coming by and we started talking and um, <clears throat> for some reason we got on like 
single parenting. She's, she's married to someone I know as well, and they have a couple of kids, and they're like doing the young kid family life. She's like, man, I don't want any part of single parenting. I, mean, I just can't imagine how hard that is. I mean, there's like two people in our household. She's like, I couldn't imagine if like, she were talking about divorces and like how it breaks in families and makes life difficult for people. And she's like, yeah, she's like, I just would not want to get divorced under any circumstances. I was like, so you kind of like the French system. Like, if your marriage isn't going well, you just get a mistress or a pair more, but you keep the family together. She's like, I actually lived in South of France, and that seems to work pretty well for them. Don't you think we should do that here? I was like, I'm a Christian. No, I don't. You know, and she, she was like, she's like, honestly, not only do I not want anything to do with single parenting, I would appreciate having like another adult in our household. Like, it would, I mean, it'd be great if there was like a whole nother one. Like, I, I was like, actually, there is a family makeup that is that. It's called polygamy, and it will be legal in probably less than 10 years. So you should start thinking about who else you'd like to add to your family. And she was like, oh, yeah, that would be interesting. So, um, uh, that, look, there's, court, there's cases in federal court right now. Right now in the Utah federal court system, the law against polygamy has already been struck down. It has to be reversed to not be that way, okay? It's just reality. Um, that's the world we live in. Isn't it fun? And so <clears throat> the, the point is, is that one of the things that I noticed as I was talking with her was that she and I have entirely different convictions about what a family is right? And it's not that I'm like mad at her or she's mad at me. We just have believe very different things. And, and she agrees with what the, I think it was the ninth district judge who said, um, marriage is simply a, um, is simply a, a word we use in modern legal culture that, that allows us to designate who our sig- romantic significant other is, who our, who our one is, which is not what I thought I was doing when I got married, Right? Now, people are going to have to make decisions, but like as a Christian, that's not what Lexi and I did 15 years ago. And that's not what she thinks we did 15 years ago, which is, I am glad about that because what we thought we did was that we created like a new humanity out of two separate lines in which we covenanted with each other to never lose track of each other, to never leave each other, to live in close proximity proximate harmony in a home to raise whatever children God gave us, living together closely with them throughout our lives for the ridiculously long time it takes them to mature, <laughs> right? And then to be there to shepherd the other through life, death, sickness, illness, physical or mental, all of these things till death do us part, no matter how fast each of us paid into that personally, that it was not an economic transaction, that it was a covenantal transaction. And the reason why that's important is because she and I have been leaning on that conviction for 15 years. I'll just, tell you, I'll just tell you right now, there may be some people who are much better human beings than me. Well, that's, that's not a question, right? There are lots of people who aren't better human beings than me. But um, I could not have gotten through 15 years of marriage to a perfectly decent woman without a very deep conviction that it's not about the ends that I hope to receive from marriage, but my conviction about what my marriage ontologically is. It is is a spiritually unbreakable covenantal union that produces new immortals that must be shepherded in a certain way so that they would be mature and godly and that I have no right to break it, no capacity to break it, and must be faithful to it. And that goes way beyond me, right? And here's the thing, here's why I relate this, because that is what's necessary to keep any family together. And the way in which family thrives, and I'm going to talk about how the, how the church is the family of God, if you're wondering where this is going. 
any family thrives is it doesn't start with what you get out of your marriage or how S-E-X-U-A-L fulfilled you feel or how, how great everything's turning out in terms of your portfolio or your children. That's all the ends of marriage. Those are the fruits you hope to pick. But where it starts, where the family starts, is a conviction about what it is. Which is an immaterial, metaphysical reality. You can't, you can't prove it, but you have to believe it. It requires faith. And that faith, ha- that faith, that belief in what it is, produces a conviction, a unshakable belief, which leads to an awakening of your imagination around that, which we call romance. That is, that we have to feel positively in relationship to our conviction. Let me give you an example of this really quick. So I have, a, I have a confession that I have to make, and I've kept it as hidden as possible from all of you for the five years that I've been here at High Point. And I hope after I tell you, you'll be able to respect me still, um, if any of you do. Um, and that is, is that periodically I actually listen to country music. Yeah. Yeah, and so, um, and my wife, who does not, and will not suffer to be played in her presence, um, once asked me, why do you listen to that, right? And my response was not, I love the little slidey thing or whatever. It was, it, was like, it was like, baby, here's why. And you may not like it, but you will like that I listen to it after I tell you this. I said, listen, if I'm driving home from somewhere and I have like 25 minutes, I don't have a, load, uh, a talk loaded in my phone, I'm gonna listen to the radio. I can listen basically to pop music or the Christian radio or country music. Those are my options. And I just, I can't listen to that, to the Christian music stuff all the time. It's just not helpful. It normalizes God language in a way that actually I don't think is good for my soul. And it, because I work with it all the time. Like if you don't, if you're not in church all the time, it's not, for me, it's, all, it's too much and it desensitizes me. So I listen to something else. If I listen to pop music, basically what I listen to is the, a celebration of promiscuity, which means at the end of 25 minutes when I get home, I want to call a prostitute. Because artistically, like artistically, what my imagination has been rehearsing with that art is ignobility. It's the misuse of my passions and desires for things that I do bodily want. And I've, that's what I've been imagining and rehearsing through my utilization of that music just by listening to it. I, if I listen to country music, yes, it's twangy and half the songs are about breakup. And yes, two thirds of them are like drinking songs now. But the other third, even the breakup songs are still extolling monogamy. They're still extolling that two people should stay together. That if you can give yourself in love to someone, then you should. That you have to stick with it. And when it breaks apart, it's always bad. And, and if you want to hear a song about being with somebody through different stages of life, love that matures beyond just you're not going to find that pop radio. You're just not. Only country music sings about that. And so I can endure the twang and the blah, 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 because when I get home, I want to go kiss my wife. That's, what, that's where I am emotionally, right? And so I'm not saying you need to listen to it. I'm not saying that. I'm not even saying it's good music, though I think some of it is. Um, and Blake is all my kids' favorite on The Voice, but just because he's funnier. But th- the idea is, is that what we rehearse in the romances of our imagination, heart, and mind either confirm our convictions and empower them passionately or they undermine them. It's one of the reasons why you just shouldn't just take in whatever art you feel like. Because it's evoking your imagination and it's ordering your passions and all of that. And so when we have a conviction about 
about marriage or family or gospel or church, those convictions, we need to rehearse their beauty in our imagination, in our romance. So our feelings move, because otherwise, our feelings are gonna bar us the other way. Like, I mean, th- I think about your average, like, dude who's in an awkward stage of marriage with little kids and being ignored by his wife, right? He's driving home from work, and he can, he can either be like, oh, my wife, she totally ignores me, but it's just, uh. I mean, he can do that, and when he gets home, he's already upset, right? Or he's already like, oh, this isn't gonna go well. Or he could be like this, right? He gets in his car, he's driving home, he's like, he's like, okay, my wife is ignoring me, but look, like, I could not have been more in love with her when we got married, and she still is that woman, and if she's not treating me that way, there's probably stuff going on, and if I'm a man, masculinity means I have to find her and, you know, win her heart, and just like, I, I mean, I was happy to win her heart when she was 21. Why am I not happy to win her heart now when she's got stuff going on? Like, there's, there's all, there's different ways to think about this stuff, and your convictions have to lead to your romances, to awaken your imagination, to lead to practices. Because your romances will lead to your practices, right? So, so I'm driving home, I'm thinking that way, I call my wife, I say, baby, I'm on my way home, is there anything I can get for you? That's a practice that came out of the imagination that flowed from a conviction, and then by the time I get home, I have the end I wanted all along. My wife is more favorably disposed towards me because I acted to love her, because my imagination pointed towards something that was good, and that did not start by what I got out of my marriage. It started with a conviction about what it is. Okay, now, the exact same thing is true about the gospel in the church. Jesus said that he, he died and he rose from the dead to repurchase back for God lost humanity that was drowning in its own drunkenness of sin and killing itself, and he purchased them from humanity, everyone that would believe for himself, and he created a new family out of them so that everybody in it would be a brother and sister to each other, and they would be so for eternity, and it would be thicker and deeper than genetics or blood or clan or race, or whatever, and that that is the new family of redemption and regeneration, and that we should be incredibly devoted to it. In fact, our devotion to it is one of the only ways we can show how deep our devotion to Jesus is. How are you going to show how deep your devotion to Jesus is? Really? How are you going to do it? Well, you can sing worship songs. You can do that, and that's real. It's real. But that's really fakeable, too. And the way that we enter into real sacrifice is, I mean, the Bible just says it, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. One of the only ways you can show God how much you love him is by picking a person you would not pick to love and loving them. Or picking a person who your role demands you love, or your vocation or calling demands you love, and love them. Right? In 1 John, when John is writing to the church and trying to explain to people how they would know they're a Christian, you know what the three criteria he gives are? Right? I'll save you reading the four pages so you won't have to do that all by yourself, right? Sorry, that was condescending. That was, sorry, I apologize. Um, read your Bible is what I meant by that. Um, is, the first is that you would confess that Jesus is Lord and King, that Jesus is who he said he was. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God, right? Orthodox confession of Jesus. You know what the second one is? That he, he or she loves the brothers. And what John is referring to there is the church, the brothers and sisters of faith, that if you love Jesus, 
The first thing that we would see from you is that you would confess that. You would say, I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. He died for my sins. He rose from that. That is who he is. I believe in him. The second, the very second thing John says, the second best proof and the most practical one is they clearly love Christians. Now, if he was going to make a longer list, it would get to love everyone, I'm sure. But if you can't love Christians, like people who are actually Christians, we got problems, right? And then the third is that you're falling out of love with the world. Right? Conviction precedes these things. And if you believe in Jesus, believing in Jesus will produce a devoted community. A devoted community. If you believe in Jesus, the gospel will produce devotion to the community of faith. Okay? Now there's three— Sorry, I didn't go linearly through that. There are three— Devotions, that is habit, that the gospel will produce in people who are growing in their devotion to the devoted community, right? That is, how does that passion, that desire, that conviction, that growing imagination, and that and the beauty of the gospel lead to practices in which we do this with each other? And the first is, in this text, is a devotion to the apostolic teaching and leadership. If you're cynical about church, this isn't going where you think it is. Devotion to the apostolic teaching and leadership, okay? It says in Acts 2, 42, that they, that is all the Christians that were gathered together, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So much so it says that they gathered in the temple courts every day to listen to the teaching of the apostles. Now you might say, okay, is the announcement here that we're going to have church every day? No, no. Um, Part of the thing here is, remember, this, a lot of people go to this passage and they go, this is what the church should be like all the time, right? Which is great, but most of those people don't want to have church every day. What's the deal? Here's the, here's the issue. These people have come from all over the world, right? They came on Pentecost. They heard the gospel. They believed in Jesus. At some point, they're probably going to go back home. But they don't want to go home because they just found new life in Christ. They have no idea what it means. And so they're staying as long as they can in Jerusalem, and they're going in there hearing teaching every single day because at some point, they have to go back to Phrygia, which is not a— brand of refrigerator, but a place in Turkey, <clears throat> and live there, and they need a deposit of whatever it is they believe, because they don't have a buy, they don't have a New Testament, and they're going to go back there, and Paul hasn't gone to Phrygia yet, and so they've got to—and so they're, they're there, and some of them apparently grow poor, because just a minute, we're going to talk about money given to the poor, and some of these people, probably people who travel from out of town, they don't have any money, they didn't plan for a trip this long— but they go every day because when they accepted Jesus, they realized they wanted to know everything they could about what this means, right? No girl believes that a guy is pursuing her who doesn't want to talk. So no girl believes that, especially early on, right? Yeah, in fact, my, my, my wife and I, so we've been married 15 years now. We've been together almost 20. <clears throat> and she says something like, she said something like, you know, when we first met, we had so much to talk about. And I was like, yeah, now we have so much to do. That was romantic, I promise. Um, <clears throat> you see this in, um, in Act 6. There's a point where—and and the reason I'm saying this is that people who are in charge of delivering the apostolic teaching, their main job is to teach and lead, okay? And I, I say this because this is the main job of the elders, okay? Now, their job is to elder—is to elder. That's a tautology. Thank you, Captain Obvious. But um, their job is to shepherd. But they shepherd by doing a ministry of the word and leadership, Right? So when elders shepherd people, the main thing that we bring besides basic compaction is the word of God. 
When we elect people to the position of eldership, one of the reasons why one of the qualifi- the only non-moral qualification is that an elder is, anybody want to take a shot? Able to teach. That's the only non-moral qualification for elders. They have to be this and this and this. They have to live out the Christian ethic out of faith. But in addition to that, they have to be able to teach. Why? Because their main work is that whether they preach, whether they pray, or whether they go see you at the hospital, the main thing they have to offer isn't money. It's the word. And the main job of the elder is the ministry of the word and of leadership. In fact, there's a point where um, the church is growing in Acts 6, and the church has a charitable function in that it's providing for its poor, and it also has a teaching function. And there's a point where you, there's this moment where it becomes one or the other, because there's this problem with the distribution of food to, the, to poor widows, and there's preaching and teaching to be done. And what do you think they do? Of course they go, well, we got to take care of the widows, Right? No, because if you stop teaching and preaching, there won't be anybody with the right convictions who can do that. They said, listen, we cannot stop, and listen to the pejorative that they use. We cannot stop the preaching and teaching of the word in order to wait on tables. That's a little offensive, isn't it? We're talking about widows. These are important people that we are responsible to take care of. These are the the lowest of the low in terms of of asset and capacity to to provide for themselves. I mean, how dare you talk like that? And it's intentional. It is intentional. What he's saying is there are lots of people that can do that. Get your butts out of your seats and you go do it. Don't tell me it's not being done. Because, right, what happens? People come and complain. They're like, hey, there's stuff. It's not going right. And they're like, yeah, yeah. Um, right? I mean, what do they say? They say, listen, you find some people that are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and let's appoint them to serve those women. Because you're right, that has to get fixed. Absolutely. But we cannot do that. We have to teach the Word of God. And so, one of the things that you—every church has to be very careful of is to make sure that that's what its elders and especially its pastors are giving the majority of their time to. At this point in High Point Church's life, I know—listen, I, I would love to go to cookouts with everybody and see every—yeah, tell me you have a hangnail, I would love to come and pray with you. I, I mean, and I, I'm not, and I don't mean that jokingly. I really would. I'm a little bit of an introvert, but I, I really love this church. And, um, but here's what I have to give myself to. Building up leaders with the word. That's what I have to give myself to. Because that's my job. I have to do that. And so does Lloyd and so do all of our elders. And that's why we have deacons. Because there's things that elders shouldn't be doing. And there is this enormously honorable office in the church called deacon, which is Greek for servant. We just don't translate it because it sounds sexier with deacon, right? <clears throat> but it just means servant, but it doesn't mean the guy who moves the chairs. We all move chairs. Deacons are people that we know are full of the Holy Spirit wisdom, and when we have a problem like this, we can entrust it to them, and we know that they will handle it. It's a very important job, right? We need to keep moving here. Now, you might be thinking like, okay, so wait, so are you, are you equating yourself with the, with the apostles? That's a little scary, right? And let me just be clear about this. Um, there are lots of ways people in the church think about like, who are the, are there apostles now? Or is there an apostolic anointing or whatever? In the high church, like the Roman Catholic church, they think of apostleship in terms of succession, right? Uh, if you talk to a Roman Catholic theologian, they will say, we can trace the succession of Peter from the present pope all the way back to Peter. And that's how we know the pope has the apostolic authority through succession. I don't believe in that. 
okay? I don't believe you can't do that. I'm just saying I don't think that gives you the right to do anything. Second is anointing. I was at a meeting just this week where, where apostle so-and-so got up and she prayed and did some stuff, and I'm not going to argue with her, but I'm not going to be like, hey, I want that title. Let's, I want to be apostle so-and-so. Yeah, I don't believe, I don't believe in the registration of anointing on someone saying, we're going to call you apostle. Now, I can't prove that wrong either, right? Apostle means somebody who is sent. The apostles had leadership roles that functioned over many local churches. We do require leadership that bring together and work with many local churches. So could you have a role that you could call apostle? I guess. I think people tend to get confused and, and people can get a little bit, um, not this particular person because I don't even know her, but people can get a little bit for their britches when you slap that title on them. And I, I'm, I'm concerned about it. I would not do that and I would not accept that title. But... Um, I, I think the, the clearest is that ap- what's apostolic is that which is in relationship to the teaching of the apostles. It is the apostolic teaching that, that we, re- we rehearsed in that song that we said in the Apostles' Creed that is canonized in the scriptures and that I try to preach from the Bible. I believe I stand in apostolic authority when I preach from the Bible faithfully. Not because I'm a particular something. Does that make sense? And you see this in the development of the church because what happened when the church went global? When the church went global, you couldn't have 12 people everywhere. And so the apostles, what did they do? Did they appoint apostles everywhere they went? They actually didn't do that. They appointed elders everywhere that they went. And a plurality of them, not just one usually. We don't know of any example where they did just one. So there was a plurality of elders, people who were mature and able to teach in any specific location, and the apostles appointed them, which is we elect them. That's not the same thing, but we're a little short on apostles at the moment. So we do the electing thing. We do it the way the apostles told us to. In the Bible, it says it in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. It says explicitly how to do this. We try to follow that, right? And so when you get things spread out, eventually Paul's talking to Timothy, who's doing apostolic-like work, and he says, this is what you should teach people. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Meaning, that apostolic work of preaching and teaching— Though it may not carry the apostolic authority that we canonize in the Bible, it's the same job. Does that make sense? It's the same job. They're supposed to be preaching and teaching. And so you should demand, and listen, I assume, that you, you may, because you may wonder why I preach for like 50 minutes every week. And like, Nick, the children's ministry, and we got roasts, and listen, the reason I do this, aside from the other reasons of, if you dug down deep enough, you'd be sure you'd find self-importance and all kinds of junk. But the conscious reason that I do it the Christianly motivated conviction reason that I do it is that I expect that you as Christians want to hear the word of God preached. You want to know what the Bible says. You want to know how to apply it to your lives. And I'm not infallible in any sense, but I'm trying to reflect and clarify and push forward and inflict upon you and, and push you and encourage you as much as I can because I believe that if you're a Christian, you want that. And, and that, well, I won't say more about that. Let's just keep moving, okay? All right. The second is that we'd be devoted, if if we have a devotion for the gospel, it'll lead to a devotion in the apostolic teaching and leadership. But also second is that we'll be devoted to the fellowship. Notice that in that verse it says that the Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That word fellowship doesn't require a definite article. Why the? It could have just easily said, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to fellowship, right? The breaking of bread, because that's a definite action, right? And to prayer. Why the definite article? And it's, 
I think it's really clear because he's talking about a particular fellowship. He's not generally talking about the fact that people should get together. He's speaking specifically that there is a fellowship that is the church, that is all regenerate Christians, and some group of them will assemble locally as real human beings, and when they do so, that's the fellowship, and these Christians devoted themselves to it. They devoted themselves to it. They believed they had to be part of it. Um, you, you may have heard, because some people respond to this and be like, listen, Nick, the whole community thing is such a cliche at this point. Like, I've heard, like, the, we should be doing life together. And listen, I am doing everything I can just to do life with myself, my job, right, my family. And I remember I was in seminary, I was married, but I was single. And so there's all these, like, community stuff, all these people getting together and hanging out and being with each other. And we're like, community, community, community. And the married— um, people with kids who lived off campus would come in and they'd be like, they'd be like, hey guys, and we'd be like, hey, you should come to our community thing. Let's have some community together and we'll drink coffee and call that community. And they were like, yeah, I, I, I'll see you later. And finally, there was one guy who was like, listen, community is just what you people do when you're on campus, okay? Like, I have a life, I have children, I can't do this. And it was, it was helpful because it, it tells us a couple of things. One is how you do community actually will be somewhat dependent on your life stage. It's totally cool that community, in some sense, is what, like, the college students do when they're on campus, or like, the young adults do when they play volleyball or whatever. I can't go to that. I have children. I'm putting them to bed while spikes are being hit in the gym, okay? I'd love to do that. I can't, right? Because I'm a—I'm a grown-up. I shouldn't say that. Because I'm a dad, okay? I didn't mean grown-up. I was just a joke. I was a joke, kind of. Um, I'm a dad. I can't do that, right? I have to have small—I have small group every night at my house with all six of us, Okay? Right? Like, we used to talk about—we had this church on the church um, Vincent's from. Like, Forrest, there was this guy who worked with YouTube. We did this initiative at Christ Church. Dinner for eight. Right? Dinner for eight. And so you'd, you'd like, get eight people from the church. You'd get them together. They'd all have dinner together and have community. And, well, Vincent's from a family of six kids. And his dad, Vincent, also said, I, I got dinner for eight at my house every night. Every night. And it's not nearly as nice as those dinners, you know? But at the same time— that doesn't mean that community is just for people with leisure time, right? There are ways in which families can open the doors of their privacy and have more interaction with other people. I mean, Lexi and I have four children. We have people in our house all the time. Now, we don't drive to as much stuff, and I don't do community at midnight like some other people do, but, but there's still ways to engage in community, even if it's not a weekly small group, that we really encourage that. I'm going to skip that right now. The, one of the things that I think is really important to focus on here is we try to do a lot at High Point that helps people engage in community. We have worship services. People have been staying in these worship services and talking for like 40 minutes after they're over. We have classes where medium-sized groups get together. They hang out. They talk about scripture and the truth and stuff like that. Um, we have lots of small groups. You know, I don't know if you know this. There's like 500 people in High Point who go to small groups. Most of them meet every week, Right? But that, none of those things are the key to having community. The key is devotion. Whether or not, out of conviction and romantic imagination, you are devoted to the fellowship. 
And not just the abstract universal church where you don't have to deal with any concrete humans. I'm talking about the universal church as it is in a local church with real people of different generations, hopefully of different races, both genders, as evenly with children and old people, people who don't like the things you like and that wouldn't be in your Facebook feed and all of that. Are you devoted to the fellowship? Because if you're devoted to Jesus on his terms, and God help us if we think we could be devoted to Jesus not on his terms, right? If you're devoted to Jesus on his terms, you'll be devoted to the fellowship, right? And the third thing is devoted to sacrificial and profound generosity, right? Acts 2 says all the believers were together and had everything in common. In fact, I remember sitting down in college at the, in like the dining hall, and my friend Annie Leonardo walked up and like grabbed a handful of bacon off, because you could get all you could eat bacon, and in those days I could eat that, right? And he grabbed a handful of bacon off my tray and just took a huge bite out of it. It was just chewing it, standing right in front of me. I was like, do you have some kind of problem mentally that you, right? And he's, I mean, he's only five, eight. Like, I could take this guy, right? And um, he goes, he gets half done chewing, not totally done. He goes, Acts 2. Your bacon's my bacon, right? I had a roommate. He'd put on like a shirt out of my closet, which in those days didn't happen very often because I only shopped at Salvation Army. But he was like, I was like, we, he's like, Acts 2. You know, we just, and, and that became kind of a thing in our, like, our college fellowship. People said that to us all the time, Acts 2, right? And it was, it was good for us. It taught us to have this generosity of spirit with each other. But you get to chapter 4, a very similar passage, and it gets a little eerie, right? Like, listen, listen to this, right? He goes, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of his possessions was his own. But they shared everything they had with great power. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There was no needy person among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Which, you know, you read that, and you're kind of like, what? Are we supposed to be living in, like, hippie communes or like I'll be communists or like what does that actually mean right and because listen if you don't ask that question at all you probably are reading carefully I mean that's what it I mean it's like they didn't regard it as their own they, like it says that you can't take out your little black sharpie marker and highlight it you know what I'm saying so one of the things that I think is important to recognize is that there is a tension in all of these texts between real individuality and individual ownership and responsibility, which is affirmed, and real individual identification with a community of people in which we really belong. Which again, the family metaphor is helpful. Am I individual in relationship to my family? Does my individualism disappear because I got married or I have kids? No, I am still me. But I'm still connected in a way that's more profound than for me to be able to choose the nature of my connection with everybody else. Does that make sense? True individual—not just understanding the rights of an individual, but individualism is when I believe I am myself, I have what I have, and every external relationship is voluntary on my part, morally speaking, and should be legally. That's individualism. That's taking the concept of the individual too far. You are yourself. You do own what you own. But your relationship with other people and the nature of that relationship is not fundamentally voluntary on you. There are realities. I have responsibilities to my wife whether I like them or not. 
I may have started it voluntarily, but it's not voluntary anymore. The minute I had a child, I had fundamental irrevocable responsibilities to that child. Am I still an individual? Yes, I am. Can I, because I'm an individual, hold my responsibility my child voluntary? Absolutely not. No. And so understanding who we are as individuals recognizes that we are ourselves. We do have personal responsibilities and personal freedoms. And as human beings, we are in some ways connected to others, and we better morally and philosophically sort out what those connections are, because I would argue they're incredibly confused right now in our modern culture. One of the things that comes up in these passages is that there is an affirmation of individual ownership all through the Bible. That's never questioned in the Bible. All the people who sold land sold their land. When it said that they, that things were shared, it said they regarded their personal possessions as belonging to everyone. It was a fundamental regard. Does that make sense? That in Acts 5, when Ananias and Sapphira get struck dead by the Holy Spirit, here's what happens. They sell their land, they get their payment for that land, and they go and they lay part of it at the apostles' feet, but they lie and say it's all of it. Now, when Peter explains to Ananias and Sapphira why they are about to die— for infecting the generosity and truth culture of this beautiful church. He says, when you sold the land, wasn't it yours? And when you got the money, wasn't that money yours? Those are both rhetorical questions. The answer is, of course they are. That's why Ananias and Sapphira are personally responsible for what they do with it. In this case, they lie. They want to be seen as generous when they're not fully generous, and so they end up dead. It presumes that they can be held responsible to their relationship to the moral fabric of the community with their own death. They are connected to the church. But it also demonstrates that what they did it with was theirs. In fact, if you look at kind of how generosity functions, you can't actually be generous with other people's stuff, right? I'll try to refrain from quoting Margaret Thatcher here. But like, if, if, well, there was one time where my mom gave me some money to give my friend Manohar, who has a ministry in India, right? And <clears throat> she, she gives me like $800, and I give it to Manohar. And Manohar gives me this huge hug. He's like, Nick, thank you so much. You're so generous. I'm so happy you're my friend. I'm like, Manohar, I, I got $800, and guess how much you received? You received $800, which means I added nothing to the gift. There's like no level of generosity involved here, Right? Because it's, it wasn't my money. I received it and I gave it. It's gen- I'm generous when I have my money and I give it to Manohar. Does that make sense? Or my time or my devotion or my—it has to be mine. And so generosity requires both. Fundamentally, a sense of individual freedom, a reality of the individual, but also a community identification. And you see how both of those words are built in the idea of the individual? And how we identify, we are identified with others, and we are identified as ourselves. And Christians are always sorting out the tension between those two. That's one of the reasons why we can't be possessed by either current political ideology. We don't fundamentally believe in either of their views about what we are and what our responsibilities are. We have to resort those out for ourselves and then cooperate or discooperate to the extent to which we think is appropriate, which we're all going to disagree on, probably. Does that make sense? Let me try to bring things together with this. There's one character throughout the whole book of Acts that unifies it together. 
and it's not Peter and it's not Paul. Paul and Peter sort of reign over the two halves of the book of Acts. But there's one character that unites it all together, though he feels kind of like a minor character at certain moments, and it's a character named Barnabas. <clears throat> and he gets introduced right here at the end of chapter 4. And it says this. It's just one verse. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Most people, when they read Acts, just read right over that. But do you see how everything I've said in the sermon is in that verse? He's a Christian. We know he's a Christian. He's devoted to Jesus, and that has produced a willingness to trust the leadership of the apostles because he sells a field he owns, and he takes the money and he lays it at their feet. He doesn't do that because they need a, a footrest. He does it because that demonstrates his relinquishing of his authority over that money and his delivering of the authority over that money to the apostles because he unilaterally trusts them to do the right thing with it. It's likely he's still there from Cyprus in the first place because he stayed to listen to the apostles' teaching. He clearly respects them and is committed to their leadership. The second thing is you see that he's committed to the fellowship. Well, not just because he's generous, but look at his nickname. His name is Joseph, but he gets the name Barnabas, right? Barnabas is a is an Aramaic root, so it had to get translated into Greek so everybody could read it. So Luke says it actually means son of encouragement, meaning this is, what, this is what this guy was marked by. He was part of the church. He's going in every day to hear the apostles' teaching, and he's just building everybody up. He's just ever being like, hey, man, how's Phrygia? What's up? You know, like, and talking to this guy and building these guys up and hearing from the apostles and passing it on and breaking bread in people's home and praying and doing all these things. And ultimately, when he sees this growing generosity, he wants to participate in it himself. He may have had to write a letter back to Cyprus to have somebody sell the land for him, have the money sent to him, and he may have had to go through all that kind of trouble because he wanted to participate. He's so committed to the fellowship. And that devotion comes from his devotion to the gospel. And then lastly, you see his sacrificial generosity. And I want you to understand, and his life shows this, <clears throat> that from those basic disciplines that flow out of a conviction and romance about the gospel and what it means and who we are, that when you engage in those disciplines, it changes your life and it changes the life of other people. You know what his story is? So he's hanging out as Mr. Brother Encouragement, right? And this guy who's killing Christians, who goes as far as Syria— to throw him in jail. A guy named Saul at this point. He's later the guy who's going to be called Paul. On his way to Damascus in Syria, Jesus shows up, kind of beats the stew out of him spiritually and, con and converts him, right? So Saul, Paul becomes a Christian. S still Saul at the time. He comes back to Jerusalem and wants to join the church because he realizes that the church that he was trying to destroy is what Jesus wants him committed to not destroying, right? And so he goes and tries to be part of it. You know what they say? Dude, you can't come in here. Like, we don't know if you're for real or what. You know who figures it out? Barnabas does. It says, it says in chapter 9, Barnabas goes and he gets Saul, and he brings him in. And he goes, guys, this guy is for real. Now, where does that come from? Barnabas had a keenness, but also a generosity of spirit. And he cared enough about the church and who had the right to be in it. Even the guy who killed the first martyr. That he said, listen, I, I, he went and apparently found out that Paul was for real. Did whatever that took. And then he went and he faced the apostles and he said, listen, this guy is for real. 
Then in chapter 11, after the first great persecution, Jewish Christians go to Pisidian Antioch, and they start telling just anybody about Jesus, which they apparently weren't supposed to do. And um, they didn't really know yet. God had just revealed that that was the way it was supposed to go. They get to Antioch, a city so divided by racial tensions that the Romans had built, I think it was 13 walls to separate the city and the ghettos so the races wouldn't mix, okay? All of a sudden, the Christians start telling Greeks about Jesus, not just other Jews. And so you have the first multiracial cross-religious church. Which is why the Christians are called Christians first in Antioch. Because it's the first time you would look at the church and you couldn't say anymore, oh, that's a Jewish sect. You see, before that, they were just Jews that believed in the way. It was in Antioch that they became non-Jewish also. It was the first time they needed a new name. They weren't just Jews. They were something else. So let's call them, well, they follow this Jesus Christ, so let's call them Christians. Their name kind of stuck, I guess, right? When that happened and the apostles heard about it, they knew they had to do something. Now, who do you think that they, who would go, right? Well, Peter probably, or John, or like somebody important, right? One of the apostles surely is going to go to this new church, right? That's not who they sent. They sent Barnabas. That's who they sent. They pick Barnabas. They go, dude, you need to go sort that out because you have this generosity of spirit. There's something about you. You get that. You're from sight. Something about your background. Like you can handle this. We're going to send you. So he goes up there. You know what he does when he gets there? He goes out in the stinking desert and he finds Paul, who's rotten somewhere, not being used for the glory of God. Because he recognizes, guess what this, what does this new church need desperately? It needs apostolic teaching. It needs teaching. And so he goes and he finds the most unutilized quality teacher, Paul. And he brings them and Paul preaches apparently to thousands. A guy who was totally unutilized until Barnabas showed up. He said, we need some apostolic teaching here. This church is never going to become the blessed fellowship of generosity that changes the world until we get some gospel teaching in here. And so he goes and he finds Paul and he pulls him in and he turns Paul loose. He's not a rock star. There's nothing about Barnabas that he's like some kind of rock star. He just gets it. He just gets it. And he just does it. And then you know what happens? Antioch becomes like the biggest church in Christianity— And through it, the Holy Spirit launches an intercontinental missionary movement led by, you guessed it, Barnabas and Saul. Which is why you're behind as a Christian today, if you are one. And it wasn't because Barnabas saw this. He had no premonition. There's no evidence in the Bible that he's some kind of prophet. Here's what we know. The gospel affected him. He believed in the risen Jesus. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He had the whole message of the gospel. He wanted it to be known. He was committed to the devoted community, the fellowship. He recognized that that meant to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to be part of the fellowship, to be radically generous. He just did those things and let God use him. And what happened? Kind of a lot. And I I want— Remember, the Bible says that the person who is faithful in small things is entrusted with bigger things. The world changes through many actions of, defo- of small, devoted discipline. What is your life going to stand for and what, is you, what are you going to be about? What convictions do you hold as though they're ends rather than convictions? Are your gospel convictions clear enough? Are they strong enough? And if they're not, Let me express to you, avail yourself of more apostolic teaching, right? Are you committed to the fellowship? If you're not, you should be. 
It's how you show your devotedness to Jesus. It's what he's called you and made you for. And if you are connected to it and you, you just, that's, that's it, but you know you have something to offer, listen, the biggest need at High Point ministry-wise is small group leaders. People who will create another space of hospitality in their home so that micro-community of real spiritual friendships can happen. We need, we, need a, we need small group leaders really bad. We got more people who want to be in small groups than we have small group leaders. I've never been in a church that's like that, but that's where we are right now. So maybe you should be a small group leader. I don't know. Maybe you just need to think, maybe you don't need to think about church differently. Maybe you just need to go back to the conviction, romance, imagination, practices, ends thing and apply that to your friendship, your roommate, your wife, your husband, your child, your work, your life. Maybe you just need to do that again. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's to fully embrace and live out as well as you can those three things of devotion to Christ in relationship to the church attending apostolic teaching, being part of electing the right elders and being led well and being responsive to that, being part of the fellowship deeply and meaningfully in real spiritual friendships. And third, being sacrificially generous that flows out of a belief that you are an individual. You possess what you possess, but you are responsible to the real relationships you have with others that are not voluntary and that God is calling his people to a kind of ridiculously crazy generosity. And part of the purpose of that is that demonstrates the power of God because no one lives like that. And I already see a lot of the seeds and growth of this at High Point Church. I mean, the fact that we're like $115,000 ahead of our budget right now shows me that there's a lot that we were pulling together, and I, and I know that, it, listen, I am under no illusions that it is my dynamic leadership that is causing this church to be profoundly generous. I understand that, okay? Just know, you know, yeah, Judy's like, I do also. <laughs> but my hope is, is that it is the gospel. It is the it is the, the scriptures, it is the truth that is drawing us together and helping us to fall more out of love with the world, out of love with things we can purchase for our securities or pleasures, and wanting to be part of something bigger than that. And the, my only hope for me as a leader or the elders as leaders is that we would be trustworthy enough that when you give your gift like you're laying it at the apostles' feet, that we would be anywhere near as trustworthy as them. And I mean, that's what we focus on. I don't, I don't focus on being slick. I focus on just trying to be trustworthy because I believe it is the gospel that creates generosity. So I don't know where you want to place this, where you want to hang this, how you want to think about this, but I hope that you will because the gospel, if you believe it, really, it will produce a profound devotion in you. And one of the things it will devote you to is the new family of God. Let's pray. Father, thanks for being with us and for loving us and teaching us through the scriptures and offering a testimony of how you created the church in the beginning and confronting us with certain truths. I pray that things that I said that were kind of silly or useless or false, that nobody would remember them. But the things that were of you, that you believe, that are from these scriptures, that are true and real, that you would afflict us with them in our conscience to drive us towards the right convictions and encourage us dramatically to live as people of conviction, devotion, and imagination, that live in the practices that will lead to the, end, lead to the ends that you desire. We want to love you in that way. We want you to be pleased, and we want all people to be in some way positively touched by the fellowship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.